This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I am your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is returning guest, Vera. We spoke last year. Uh, probably, I think, last August or something like that. She is a detransitioning female of Finnish origin and actual situation. I guess she still lives there. We talk about the ever ongoing process of detransition. We also talk about art and spirituality and other aspects of her life. She's a wonderful, wonderful dame, and it's great to catch up with her yet again. And I know you're going to enjoy this conversation if you indeed do love conversations. So without further ado, here is Vera. Yeah. How are you? How are you? I'm good. It's great to see you again. Yeah, it's been more than a year now. I think a bit more than a year, right about. Yeah. What does your shirt say? Oh, uh, Pink Floyd. Ah, uh, okay. It's a rock band. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> are you, uh, are you uh, big into music? Kind of, not really. I started to wear headphones uh, this year. So it's been a new thing in my life that I'm listening to music. <laughs> Why did you start wearing earphones? Just to block uh, out the world? To listen to music. Okay. <laughs> I, I just, I, I didn't wear headphones before because I had issues because like I was scared that, I don't know, I'm too distracted by the music to pay attention to my surroundings or something. Yeah. So I was afraid what's going to happen. And yeah, so it's been a huge bad thing in my life. And you haven't, you haven't been run over yet, right? No, I've been hit by a car, but that was before. I wasn't wearing headphones then. That oh. was a different case. Okay. That sounds like a story. <laughs> I was just walking home and crossing a street and then a taxi, um, taxi driver hit me with a car we had to go to court and everything because it was a professional driver in the middle of the city so it shouldn't have happened hmm. i got 19 euros out of that 19 euros <laughs> yeah which is about 18 dollars and 73 cents right now yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you get hurt permanently no like okay. not really like a little bit but not permanently. So, and that, that 19 euros was enough to get you a taxi ride home from court, right? Just about, if that. Maybe. I bought lunch with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, it's, it's always a meme online that, like... The like my financial situation is so bad. I'm gonna like jump in front of a car to get insurance money or something. Like it's a meme, and then I was like, "It's not worth it. It's not worth it to do it." <laughs> Nineteen euros. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, hmm. Before we go on, do you have headphones close by? You could just pop yes. them in. Yeah. Yes. Stick them on. I in. need to. Uh. 
It's better audio, usually. So we just have to manage with this audio this yeah. way. It's it's fine. I just I can't interrupt you, which is good practice for me because I'm terrible at interrupting people. All I do all day long is have these interviews where I just interrupt people constantly. So Okay, well, I mean, I was going I I I was meaning to look at the uh conversation we had one year ago just to remember what we talk about. And then I, I just couldn't listen to myself. And I was like, no, just shut up me. And then I was looking at the comments and then people had commented that Benjamin uh, has the listening skills of a saint. <laughs> and then I was like, yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> just me going on and on about something. <laughs> I, to be honest, and I probably shouldn't say this because it's... um. It's more direct than I like to be. I like to be very indirect, but uh, that interview is one of the most beautiful interviews that I've ever been a part of. So I just really appreciate you um, bringing your soul into my life and and onto my little corner of the internet because it was just so it was just so important and powerful. So sorry to be. I so saw confused. you say in a video after that. Uh, like in another video, but after our chat, that you cried. And then I was like, oh, no. <laughs> but, I mean, it's okay. people are allowed to cry. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Try to be fine with that. <laughs> it makes for good content, right? What? Uh, laughter and tears. That's the best kind of content, right? People laughing or people crying, I guess. Well, it depends, I guess, what they're crying about. But yeah, that's keep keeps the algorithm happy. <laughs> Be emotional. <laughs> huh. So I wanted to have you back on to do some catch up, and then just to pal around with you, or just to chum chum along. Um, but so. Where were you a year ago when we last spoke, and what's been going on since then? Do you mean, like, literally where I was? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, like, what were you working on, and what was your state, you know? Uh, yeah, so a year ago, I was still living in Helsinki, that's the capital of Finland, and I had just got my, like legal documentation done that I was back to being legally female and I had my new name and I was detransitioning and I was preparing to start my ex exchange studies in the Netherlands and then I spent six months about in the Netherlands and I lived there and I studied there and that was a bit chaotic and then I came back to Finland and then I continued detransitioning and then I moved out from the capital and I did my internship at this very tiny small town and then I bought an apartment and I moved here and this is a small town with less than 10,000 people living here so I moved from the capital to here so is, it's it, been a, is it further north it, than the capital are you pretty close to the pole yeah, yeah, it's, uh, well, the capital is uh, quite 
uh, as south as it gets. <laughs> so everything is further north. But yeah, it is. It's more in the middle of the country, kind of. But it's more uh, to what my childhood was like. So it's closer to where I'm from originally. So, but it's been a big uh, change and a lot of changes throughout the year because I was just thinking that uh, previously to this, like how much my life has changed and how many times within the past year because of the whole exchange studies and all that. And now I just started my last year of studies and now I am almost done with detransitioning, but then at the same time, I'm kind of trying to accept the fact that it's never going to be fully done. Like I was always waiting for the moment when I can say like, my detransition is over, it's done, I'm done with it. And then I had to realize like it's not ever going to be over in that sense because I got rid of my internal organs and I'm not producing hormones. So I have to deal with the medications and the checkups and the hormone levels and all of that. And that's not going to end. So I had to kind of deal with that. And yeah, I think one year ago, I was kind of like approaching the end of my detransition. And in that sense, I'm still in that, <laughs> like trying to be done with it and also trying to be fine with the fact that it will never be like done. So what do you mean approaching the end of it? Uh, so I can probably imagine that there's the internal like the psychological detransition and then the physical detransition but the physical detransition it's like i guess you can reverse some of the things that were done uh, that that occurred to your body during transition um voice uh chest and then your hormones or your uh, female uh, reproductive organs so you have to I guess you, you kind of have to just manage the state of your body now. And yeah. you consider that as just ongoing detransition. Yeah, well, because there was the legal side of things because I was legally male and then I needed to do all the everything <laughs> to, to be legally recognized as female again and all of that and the name change and everything. So there was the legal aspect and then there was the psychological aspect and the social aspect and the physical with the hormones and all of that. And I still grow facial hair and I didn't have uh, any more like laser treatment for my face because it was so awful to, because I had to wear the safety goggles things and then just lay on the table and they would just zap me with the laser to my face and like with some like i have ptsd so it, it's not an ideal situation to be <laughs> like blindfolded on a table and someone is just zapping you with the laser to your face and then i also had to have a, a fat transfer to my chest because uh, of the top surgery and there's this dip in my chest and it's uneven and it's uncomfortable so there is like multiple medical steps and and it's it hasn't been as easy as i thought because initially i thought at the at the beginning of uh, spring 2020 that by the summer of 2020 i'll be done i'm just gonna quit testosterone and i'm gonna go on estrogen and that's gonna be it and now it's like two and a half years later and I'm finally accepting the fact that it will not be over because 
Well, first of all, now I'm still in the uh, position and the place that I have to actively try to manage my hormone levels because the estrogen is too low. So now I'm on a higher dosage of estrogen. And if that doesn't work, then I will have to try the gel or the patches or whatever way to get estrogen to my body. And so why do you need estrogen? You just walk us through the biology of this. Like, uh, is it because you get depressed or you can't, um, you don't have energy or what, what is necessary about estrogen for the functioning of your person? Well, because my body doesn't produce any hormones naturally anymore because of the surgeries. So, well, yeah, for mood and energy levels, but also for cardiovascular health and the risk of osteoporosis, I think. And yeah, it's like bone density and heart health and all of these things. And I think that's the biggest thing about trans healthcare and transitioning, detransitioning and all of these things, that hormones are approached as these like aesthetic choices, <laughs> when in reality they are nothing but aesthetic in that sense that they have important functions in the body. Yeah. Your, your, our bodies so, are built around them in, in all, yeah. the, all the different levels, not just the sex part. Yeah, so that's why. And now... Uh, I also have high cholesterol, and that's a risk, um, like hereditary, hereditary, inherited risk in my family. So I have to lower my cholesterol levels and get my estrogen levels up and try not to get a heart attack. <laughs> because that's the, the risky situation at the moment. Mm. So if I can't get my cholesterol down, I will have to start medication for that. And yeah, there, so there's so many factors because of this. And then there's probably consequences to the cholesterol lowering medications, right? So it's just a cascade of... Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's why I had to like give up the hope that this would be over. Do you mind, and you can totally say no, um, just talking a little bit more about your chest area, like what um, needs to happen, and th this is for information purposes uh, for anybody who's considering a mastectomy uh, or who's trying to deal with the consequences of a mastectomy, but you don't have to talk about it. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to get... Uh, fake boobs or <laughs> like a boob job or something because personally I don't care and I don't need it because yeah I, I just I don't care <laughs> and it doesn't affect my life that I don't have boobs in that sense because even before uh, like medically transitioning like hormone wise because I had top surgery very first thing in my transition then I realized quickly that people still assume that I have boobs, even when I didn't have boobs. And then I was like, oh, so people, when they see that I'm female, they just assume that the boobs are there somewhere, even though there's nothing, but there is something somewhere. And then I was like, oh, okay, so it works both ways. Like now that I've detransitioned, it's very clear, well, depending on what type of clothing I'm wearing, but I don't hide the fact that I don't have boobs and I have very flat chest and I'm not 
skinny or fit enough that it would make sense that I don't have books. But still, nobody says anything, nobody pays attention to it because people see me as female, so they assume the boobs must be there somewhere. So it's not like a thing in my life. So like, I don't care. So that's why I'm not going to do anything about it. But the reason why I needed to get the fat transfer, it's because of the complications of the top surgery. So my chest is uneven and asymmetrical and it's not just a cosmetic thing. And I wouldn't care if it was just a cosmetic thing, but because there is this kind of like a dip, that's the only way I can describe it. Like it just goes in and it's so uncomfortable that I'm always like lifting my shoulders or I'm like in an asymmetrical position because the skin kind of folds on itself. So then it's so uncomfortable that I'm like always like uncomfortable and trying to fix it somehow, but there's no fixing it. So that's why they did the fat transfer from my stomach to my chest to try to fill it up so that the uncomfortable feeling would go away. And they told me when they did the procedure that it might not work. The fat might migrate or not stay there or something. So then it's like a just try again, maybe just continue doing it. But then the procedure was awful. And I just don't want to do anything to my body anymore. And it was so uncomfortable and it was so just awful. And I don't want to deal with the surgeon because he's he's, uh, a unique individual. (laughs) So So, uh, by uncomfortable, so you had pain in your stomach where the fat was taken and then the pain in your chest where it was deposited or the the actual healing from that. Yeah, and I have the still the, uh, like where the stitches were on my chest. I can still see the, the it's not like scarring, but it's still red. I don't know what's going on with that, but it's, I guess it's fine. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, and it's just because it didn't even work. So I'm still stuck with the original problem. And so, in your country, was that covered by the National Healthcare Service? Or did you no, because I did my top surgery at this private clinic uh, to begin with, because I got my top surgery done first at the private hospital. And that's why I'm dealing with this uh, surgeon <laughs> who is very um, strange. But yeah, so I did that because I found out uh, at a trans meeting and a group that it's possible without any sort of referral or diagnosis or anything. You can just go there and just give them money and they will operate on you. So I found that and then I did that. And uh, yeah, so that's why I was dealing with that. So that's why they don't fix it at the public health care because I tried to go that route because I didn't want to go back to the uh, private hospital and meet the surgeon and so on and so on. Is it the same surgeon who uh, did your mastectomy that did the reconstructive or the fat migration? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So when I when I went there, uh, when I was forced because the public health care wouldn't fix it because it was done, done there. So I had to go back there and I had been avoiding this situation for uh, seeing I got the top surgery done. So it was like more than five years, I think. And yeah, then I... I 
said that uh, yeah full regrets about the whole transition did not fix anything it was completely pointless and just i don't agree with any of it anymore and the surgeon uh well he said that i was the first one to go back and to say that and i was like yeah why would anyone come back here and yeah and then we had some very strange uh conversations when uh yeah <laughs> it was about uh like i tried to talk about kind of like because he was asking about the process of transitioning and detransitioning and why i did any of it and i tried to tell him about it and answer his questions and then he told me to uh, volunteer to uh, Yeah, so this was uh, last spring. So, uh, yeah, so he told me that if I don't know what to do with my life, then I should uh, volunteer to fight at the war in Ukraine. And, yeah, and to solve my crisis of uh, meaning or whatever by that. And yeah, this is exactly why I never wanted to go back to that private hospital because uh, yeah, I knew <laughs> that the surgeon is a very strange individual. <laughs> yeah. So strange isn't the word I would use, but that's probably approaching as polite as you can get. Yeah, yeah. And in the same meeting, uh, he asked me what I do, and I said I study at art academy and I'm majoring in photography. So then he started to show me his uh, photography portfolio and his like photography art and ask feedback. And I was like, first you tell me to die in a foreign war and now I have to critique your photography. And like, what is this? Like, can you just fix my chest that you <laughs> performed this unnecessary surgery on? And can we just move on and just not do any of this? But yeah, yeah, very strange. And yeah, now I'm not going back because it, it didn't even work. And I don't have any faith that it would work from now on either. So. Just for sake of story, what was his pictures of? Uh, black and white pictures of the sea, I think, and some rocks by the sea. I didn't have the heart to tell him that it's not very unique or interesting in like an artistic uh, sense i don't know i'm scared of him so yeah uh yeah but it was like i don't know in his words it was like his uh expression of his darkness or something yeah i'll say I'm, it sounds like this guy's got some darkness yeah yeah the one wonders the um, the spiritual toll on the surgeons who modify bodies and how that affects them. Yeah, he's uh, like uh, performing top surgeries. It's I think it's his main business. That's what he does on a weekly basis, and and then. Yeah, I was just saying that it doesn't 
fix anything. Like if people have issues, then cutting body parts of it, it's not the solution. And then I, I told him <laughs> that, well, that just means more money to you because you can perform top surgeries and then you can give them boob jobs when they regret it. So that's the double money for you. And then he said that, oh, that's not why I do this. But then he didn't give me any reason why he does what he does. So I don't know. Hmm. What a so, strange fellow. Yeah. Yeah. And also he has, he doesn't necessarily agree with gender identity ideology or the understanding of gender identity. He doesn't understand of it. and He doesn't care to understand. He just like operates on people that's a service that he provides so how is school then so you're done with school no i have uh, my last year of studies okay. i just started yeah my school is four years and i already studied photography in uh, like a technical school or like a vocational school for two years before this school i i don't know how how long one can study photography. <laughs> I think it's been plenty. <laughs> but yeah, now I just have to work on my thesis and my graduation work. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. And what's your thesis going to be on? Uh, artist entrepreneurs. Okay. My like working title before this was, okay, I'm just going to say this in Finnish. <laughs> Uh, so that means identity arts, artist identity, and like folk art or outsider art. Because I kind of wanted to find my, uh, like, where do I fit in within arts? But then I figured I would probably be entrepreneur, artist, and start my own gallery or some sort of space. So... I'm going to focus on that and I'm going to find some people to interview and research interesting people who do something interesting. And I also started a driving school because I need to get my driving license because I was planning on doing a road movie about this, uh, this like journey to find myself in arts. I wanted to make it like that in both the medium and the message is like correlating in this like very obvious way, but also mixing like blog material to like artsy footage. So yeah, I've been uh, at driving school trying to get my driving license, <laughs> but it's been uh, a long process. Well, what are you Still. adapting to the vehicle or is it difficult for you to get your head around? Yeah, it's been a challenge because I like I've been for the majority of my life I've been very theoretical, living in my head type of person. Yeah. And then I have to be aware of my flesh prison and do things with both of my hands and feet and also 
pay attention to the car and the environment. And also, yeah, but the driving uh, instruct instructor, teacher, she was really nice and calming. And she was always like making fun of me and also the other like students for paying too much attention to horses or something. Because again, this is small town and countryside. So there's a lot of horses. And then I realized like, yeah, this is like a huge perspective change that I've always been a passenger. So of, of course, I've always paid all attention to horses that I see, but now I can't look at the horses. I have to pay attention to the car and the road and traffic. And yeah, it's, it, it's so many things to pay attention to. <laughs> so it's, and also just the fact that I have to do something with my hands and legs. It's, it's so many things at the same time. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe get a stick shift then if you need more things to do. I mean, it... uh, yeah, we are learning the oh, stick okay. shift automatically that's what we have to do i think i was seeing i think i saw i might be wrong i think yesterday i saw that finland's number one export is electric cars i think it's, electric it's, cars? it's one of your nordic countries up there maybe it's norway who exports uh, electric cars i think it might, might be i think we export the chargers or the charging stations and the electronics for that, but not the actual cars. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, we have some sort of technology related to electric cars. Yeah. Not so to I me. Think it's the, uh, the stations probably. Yeah. Not to make light of your transition and detransition, but if you thought of it as an art project, Right. Or as as a journey, like you were saying, you want to make a road trip journey. Is there parallels to the process of how an artist approaches the medium in your relationship to your body or to gender? Was there a, I don't know, master, um, a, a dialectic uh, that's similar to uh, an artist and the subject or artist and the art object? Well, I mean, in the obvious sense, uh, my transition, it was the subject of a lot of different art projects, both mine and other artists. <laughs> so there there has been uh, exhibitions and books and uh, performances and <laughs> like all sorts of things related to my transitioning. And I also, because I, I didn't start arts because I was just making art. <laughs> I got my start in arts because I had a trendy identity, I guess. And also because I was doing a lot of activism for a lot of different causes. And then my activism kind of turned into art projects. And I just got a lot of opportunities. And as a trans-identified person, I got a lot of opportunities to participate in projects here and there and to perform and to play myself and to do all these things. So it was always a huge part of, like, the, the both of them, they were intertwined. My identity, my transitioning and my art career. But also my art career was always revolving around me and my personal life. Because I just figured at some point that there is this value of my tragic backstory and like me not fitting in, like being an artist is the 
position in society where the people who don't fit in go. Like that's the that's what you need to do then. So I kind of ended up in arts, and now the crisis in my art career has been that I don't want to do that anymore. And I was planning on making a project about detransitioning and detransitioners before I started my own detransition because I was just interested in the topic and I saw that it's like a relevant topic in society and identity. So I approached different people who had detransitioned and I was planning on this project and then I realized like, holy shit, this isn't just me being interested in this, but this is something that I have to do also. So then I dropped the project idea and then I stopped doing projects about myself because I realized like, oh, I can just keep the circles going. Like I can forever be this like curiosity zoo animal that I can always just do all these things and document and all of these things. But like, I mean, I did start my YouTube channel, so I guess I did that in a sense, but I separated the art career from myself. But then I kind of didn't have any other ideas. And then <laughs> I haven't, like, I still don't know what to do. Like, what else do I have to give to arts besides my story and so on? So that's why I'm I'm about to graduate and I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> but yeah, it's like identifying as trans and doing art projects about it is a huge thing and it's been a big thing in Finland and there has been like one hugely celebrated artist who is biologically male identifies as non-binary who did an art project about living as a man so that's a biological male performing manhood as an art project and then people were like this is brilliant never seen before a male being a man. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like people can do a lot <laughs> with the uh, subject. And I was approached last spring to participate in yet another project about transitioning. And then I was like, oh, no, I did transition. Full regrets. I want nothing to do with this. And then the person was like, oh, but you still have relevant experience and you still could participate and you could talk about this. And I was like, nope, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> so it's, it's also like easy opportunities, I would say. So I'm, I'm trying to think about um, this, the asymmetries between detransition as a story and transition as a story, especially in the current climate where trans is really celebrated and um, it's it's at, it's at once like cheek or chick or in fashion and kind of the status quo, but it's the status quo because those who are promoting the status quo right now really value status quo breaking art. And detransition breaks the that deconstruction that trans is. It it deconstructs that deconstruction. So I don't see how uh, it, it seems uh, 
essentially conservative and therefore anti-art in a way or anti-fashionable art in a way? Do you see, and I'm just riffing here, but do you see the the elite class ever embracing detransitioners as this celebrated um, identity? I would say that they kind of have to. They have no other option. And I I do think that the trans activism recognizes that, that if they don't somehow include and embrace and accept the transitioners, then there will be other groups <laughs> to claim the transitioners. Because I kind of feel this whole thing as this like game. <laughs> and like there's so many different agendas at play and then there's so many vultures around the transitioners which is very unfortunate because the transitioners are such an vulnerable and fragile people so yeah i think i think they have to recognize that and also there is the attempt to include detransitioning within the narrative of gender identity ideology. So they frame it in that sense that, oh, this is part of your journey. This is like your individual journey that you are rediscovering your gender identity. It's an ongoing, never-ending, unfolding process of beautiful discoveries. And there's nothing tragic about this. This is great. And you shouldn't regret anything. And you just embrace this new uh, body and identity or whatever, while the transitioners are in shambles and traumatized. And they are like, no, that's not my experience. But they are trying to reframe it in that sense so that they could keep their belief system and their framework intact. And also not to lose the transitioners to conservatives or to religious people or gender criticals or all of these other interest groups who are interested in them. But also, I think another reason why they have no other option but to embrace the transitioners is because because of all the easy opportunities for trans identified people within media, arts, culture, social media, all of that then there is almost kind of like a class of people who build careers on like on their identities and their transitioning and so on. So where do they go? Like they have to have the career option to keep going within the arts. Like in my case, like because I built my art career around my identity, then like I would have to be given the option and possibility to keep going, like creating art out of my detransition, because that's all I know. That's what I'm trained to do. That's my profession. Mm -hmm. So like, what else am I going to do? What else am I good for? So I think in this like very cynical view, if we have a class of people or like a trained young artist or whatever, or self-made artist, then they don't have anything else going. And that's why I've been in a crisis about my art career, because I don't want to choose that path of like continuing that. And I don't want to 
continue the dialogue about identity and transitioning and detransitioning and the gender and all of that, I think it's very, it, it's been done. <laughs> like, I think the art world has to move on. Like, we need some other topics, like anything else. Like, please, let's, let's just move on from that. So, and you brought up earlier uh, that your thesis is going to be about art, outsider art. So is that kitsch? Is that something that somebody would want to, like a 50-year-old woman would want in her bathroom, you know, that would just fit in? I mean, is that is that an interesting place to go? Just useful art, art that's just beauty and nice and not challenging, mm, but... Well not exactly, because in Finland, outsider art is usually people who had their houses somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and then they created like statue parks in the forest. And there is this one really famous one. Uh, I think it's called Parikkalan Patsis. I don't remember the name of it, but it's uh, it's like sometimes there is like uh, uh, international articles about it because it's so creepy. So it's these like very scary statues in the forest, and it's it just looks like a bunch of zombies. So yeah, so it's that type of things in Finland. So you can visit the houses because they had their own house somewhere, and then they lived and worked there, and they were outsider artists in like a literal sense of the word that they just lived in their own world, and they just did whatever they wanted, and then. Now they are recognized. So it's it's this like whole world of these like folk artists and outsider artists, and usually it's very non-commercial. It's nothing to be sold or bought or anything. But now it has more like this like institutional recognition. Like now they even award the outsider artist of the year, and they do like an exhibition of the outside artist of the year and then they take the art pieces that they used to be in the forest or someone's backyard and then they bring it to the gallery but it doesn't really work there because then you expect the uh, what you expect when you visit an art gallery or a museum and then there is not of that like theoretical context for it so it doesn't really work but yeah so that's why i needed the driving license because i wanted to drive to these locations in the middle of nowhere and visit these places and sometimes they even built their own houses and they did uh crazy things just by themselves hmm. so that's something that interests me it's this like creating your own world and just doing what you want to do and just existing somewhere in the forest <laughs> me just being done with society but <laughs> so that's why i kind of uh because, yeah, like I said, I didn't enter the art world because I was just creating art. Like, I don't have that type of background in arts and creating something. So I kind of researched the outsider artist and I was interested in it. But then I was kind of like, that I'm not that type of person either. Like, I don't like the world of fine arts. I don't like the art theory i don't like the identity stuff i don't like any of that but i also don't like this because i just can't like make things and somehow just create things so what do you mean you can't so... just create <laughs> why can't you just create things well i mean i can but it's like i guess i don't get the enjoyment out of it like i can't just 
do things for myself, especially because I I got used to the easy money and opportunities. Like I I'm not like trying to somehow hide my motivations behind my art career. Like I'm very open and honest about it. Like I saw easy opportunities and I took them. Could you could you explain like you said that you traveled to places and performed? What would you do? What what was your Identity oh, I, I performed uh, at a documentary theater piece about trans, masculine, and non-binary identities. So I literally performed, and I was just playing the role of me. Okay, and, and it what, was this, what were you performing? What's trans masculinity, or how did you perform trans masculinity? Uh, well, it was like a three-hour performance <laughs> i wasn't alone it wasn't only about me there was a bunch of people and then there was the legal aspect of it and the laws about transitioning in finland because it's part of public health care so it's regulated by law but there's loopholes to it and so on but it was about the legal stuff and it was about personal stuff and there was like personal statements from us and then we also did this kind of like movement uh exploration things so at that point i was alone on stage going from like masculine poses to feminine poses and like uh discovering body language and that type of thing so it was like a contemporary documentary theater piece and how would you perform what what are some of the body stances that, to perform masculinity and femininity and were they cultural specific or were they taken from Hollywood movies or something? Like where were they derived from? Well, it, it different, uh, like there was, I think there was five of us performing. Yeah. So I did like very subtle things, like how to roll up your sleeves. And uh, what else did I do? Like sitting down in different positions and kind of like a little bit like being more like, gentle or submissive or being more dominant or aggressive or th this type of thing but i wanted to do like very subtle things and not like super obvious things and there was like differences between the performers like some of them they did like peeing like uh, peeing like uh, sitting down and peeing if you have a penis and that type of things so it, it was i don't know i did very subtle things and I don't know. And what was, was the uh, audience reaction? Were they just like enthralled? I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess they liked it. I mean, there was also music to it. And for me, it was more about the presence and just being in front of audience. Because I'm very like anxious and nervous and I have PTSD. So... Uh, it was very challenging for me to perform in the first place. And I think for me, there was this like very uh, emotional and touchy connection to the audience that they could relate to me being uncomfortable. Like, because for me in my routine of body language things, it was more about the uncomfortableness of being in any sort of position, like going from masculine to feminine, feminine to masculine and always being uncomfortable. <laughs> so I guess there was this kind of like subtle thing. So I, I mean, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> hmm. But yeah, that was in 2016 and 17, I think. 
And where was yeah, it my performed? Oh, uh, uh, in Finland, okay. uh, Denmark, Estonia. Yeah, that's it. But multiple uh, locations. In Denmark, we were in uh, Copenhagen at this like performance arts festival. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And there was also uh, photography exhibitions and a book and everything. And the book won an award. <laughs> and yeah, because it was uh, the director of the project uh, is a very famous artist in Finland. So that why that's why it was like such a like big deal. And is this but, person yeah. trans themselves? The Leave. No, but he was, uh, he had been working on a long-term project about gender and gender expression and gender roles, like long before that. And that's why he was asked to direct this piece because he had already been working with those uh, ideas. And the ironic thing is that he's famous in Finland because he killed a cat uh, in a video art piece that he did long ago. And I didn't know that. Because I'm a dumbass and I don't have a background in arts. I did not know that. And at the time, I was the leader of Vegan Association of Finland. I was the vegan leader. And I did not know that I was working with a person who was famous for killing a cat. So, yeah, well, and then the vegans were mad. A cat is a carnivore. The vegans should celebrate the uh, death of a carnivore, right? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think? N- no, they don't want to kill anyone or anything. Yeah, when I had bug infestation in my apartment, I was trying to get rid of the bugs. And then one goddamn vegan told me that she was happy for the bugs that I didn't get to kill. Like, the, I was telling them this story that I was chasing the bugs and was trying to kill the bugs in my apartment. And then I was just saying that the bugs are running away from me. And then she was like, I'm so happy for the bugs that got away. And I was like, I'm in war with the bugs and you are taking the side of the bugs. So, yeah, I'm no longer vegan or associated with vegans. (laughs) But that was one of my faces. I was the (laughs) vegan leader. The vegan leader, huh? Which is Yeah, uh, I met the president and everything because of that. Could you say that again? I met the president and everything because of that when I was the vegan leader. (laughs) <laughs> is vegan activism and trans activism is there correlation with the attitudes or the ideology much yes and also uh, within the groups because in finland the identity things are very intertwined like in order to be a good person you have to be at least vegetarian or vegan and in the description of the enemy in Finland it's usually listed as one of the characteristics it's like meat eating uh, cis hetero hetero uh, man white and also driving a car and all of these things so the environmentalist uh, aspect 
of wokeism is uh, very integrated to the whole thing in Finland. And I think in other countries also, but maybe not that much in U.S. I don't know. It's all, it's all a piece. I mean, Wesley Yang calls it the successor ideology. We call it the wokeness, but it's it's all contained. It's just basically how the elite think. It's just their religion. So you have your environmentalism, your gender stuff, and the race stuff. And it's interesting that you brought up that these Finland a uh, activists called white people the enemy i mean you guys don't really i mean you're selected yeah. by nature to not have much pigment because of the lack of sun up there so i mean it's like really self-hating in a way yeah and we we don't have that many uh people of color just we just don't <laughs> and it's it's funny because uh the capital is more diverse and there's more people of color and ethnicities and religions and languages and everything. The capital of Finland, Helsinki, it's more like a European city in that sense, that it's more multicultural. But the rest of the Finland, it's, um, yeah, it's pretty white. <laughs> and it's, but we have the, like all the woke race stuff here also. And we have our own uh, specific flavors to it as well. And yeah, it's it's this whole thing. And I think it's so funny that like somehow someone found that there is a trans woman of color in Finland and they found this person and made a documentary film about this person. And like, I was so glad <laughs> for the woke people that they found their supreme leader in that sense. But it was kind of funny because I was watching the documentary and like i have nothing against her she seems nice but it was funny because she always dreamed of being a model and a dancer and she, she was pursuing a career in modeling and dancing and performing so i think her kind of like vanity in that sense and these kind of like fun aspirations in life i think the woke people might have been a little bit uh disappointed in their newly found supreme leader so i don't know i just found it funny but <laughs> hmm. but yeah we have like all of that stuff going on in here also again not to make light of detransition but just thinking in terms of um outsider art thinking in terms of environmentalism thinking in terms of the human nature to reject human nature and how transition and detransition are this, it's kind of like this environmental struggle in a way where transition is, it, I, I just see this weird kind of ironic twist in environmentalism as trying to save the, the planet, but the cost of that can be pretty extreme. It seems like it's the, the thing that they're going to use to shut down society and to control society. The, uh, WEF is, you know, they, they used COVID as a training ground to see how they can centralize their power. And they're rolling out, they have documents that they're rolling out, the climate crisis is the next thing. So it could be the case that environmentalism and saving the planet is really kind of anti-human, in a way, anti-human uh, liberty, anti-human nature, anti-human technology in, in, a, in this odd way. And there's just the, just the inkling of a parallel 
with regard yeah, to... Yeah, it is. And it's the kind of like, yeah, the anti-human, anti-life sentiment can be found in both, which is kind of strange because, you know, transitioning will sterilize you. Like there's no way around that. And a lot of environmentalist people also have this sentiment that it's morally wrong to have kids. No one should have kids because of climate change and because the world is such awful place. And there is kind of this like anti-natalist, uh, anti-natalism, is it that? Yeah, that's what it's called. Yeah, that thing in deep ecology and all of this. And there is a lot of authoritarian attitudes and yeah. Yeah, it's it's a strange world. And is there is there art to be made that challenges that artfully? Like not not directly making statements or deconstructing it, but I just wonder if there's a way of challenging that. Um, I know in terms of theory, um, like vitalism is coming to the fore as a reactionary um, modality or reactionary way of thinking where we return to the vitalism of the body and we return to the vitalism of that, that was fostered by tradition. If you look of if you look at tradition, not as the chains that shackle you, but as a garden that you tend, and then you're, you're working, you're using your human nature to channel, you know, mother earth in, in a direction. Um, and that kind of seems to have a kernel or a seed of vitality that is not subject to the pessimism and cynicism and authoritarianism, uh, that you see manifesting in the elite, um, ideology yeah i was just thinking that uh like if you find a way like an artistic creative way to approach these topics then yeah maybe you could do it but like who's gonna exhibit that <laughs> because you know they have their narratives they they know what they want <laughs> so unless you have already a platform or your own space or you can frame it in a way that they tolerate, then I don't know. <laughs> but I've seen some articles in Finland uh, interviewing people who thought that they would never want to have kids because of climate change. And then they had kids and then they realized that having kids also motivates them for the like work to end climate change because they now have kids and they have this interest in future. So it's it's a counter argument to the sentiment that you shouldn't have kids or it's wrong to have kids or nobody have kids. So they say that having kids is what motivates them more to help to save the planet more. Hmm. So I do see that sometimes people do try to challenge the narratives, but I don't know. I've found also that because throughout my YouTube channel, I, I now have most of my videos members only, but uh, so they're not like just public out there, but they are still there. 
<laughs> all of my anti-woke, anti-vegan material is still there. But I was very paranoid at some point because of it, because I'm still studying arts. I'm still very much connected to the woke world. And just I'm trying my best to find ways to cope with that and to just exist within that. But at some point, I realized that the people who are the most deeply involved in those ideologies they don't even understand that someone can not think in that sense so it doesn't even matter what i say so i can say all of my opinions and they will reframe that to fit their narrative Hmm. and they will assume i'm ironic or sarcastic or joking i don't mean what i say or i don't know they will somehow like make it work in that sense that they still believe that I absolutely agree with them. And that gave me kind of peace of mind in that sense that, like, I'm safe from being cancelled by these people because <laughs> like, they still believe I'm on their side in that sense. Mm. But it also, uh, like, it, it is concerning if people are so deep into their frameworks and thinking that they don't believe that anyone could possibly disagree with them. Mm-hmm. So it's quite concerning. There's this woman on Twitter, and I think her handle is Lordy. Um, I mean, that's her name. I don't know what her handle is. But for the past year or so, she's been doing portraits of detransitioners. And a couple days ago, she put them all together in one kind of photo and it kind of got traction in the gender critical side of Twitter, which, you know, attracts the attention of people who hate the gender critical people. And there was this, what did you, what did you call that doctor? Strange man. There was a strange man that started uh, haranguing this woman who just made this art about detransitioners. And he says, you know, there's, that's only 1% of the trans community. Why are you not celebrating the trans people? The trans people have, have it so much worse and there's so much more material there. Why are you doing this project? It was so weird. It was so weird that he was trying to tell her what to do, uh, trying to, you know, tell her that the trans people need, uh, art about them when the entire infrastructure is about them. Every corporate uh, business in America has the trans logo, you know, at least one day, if not a month, a year. Uh, And then it was just interesting that they go after these anti-GC men, these men who are anti-GC. They show up and and criticize these women for just, you know, celebrating or uh, talking about these issues and, uh, you know, pouring their love into making the art that they want to make. And uh, so I replied to the guy, like, why aren't you telling me what to do? Like, here's here's 40 hours of me talking to detransitioners. Why don't you tell me, why don't you try to tell me what to do? No, no answer. No answer. Like, it, it just doesn't seem like he's interested in challenging me, telling me what to do. But he's really keen on telling the woman what to do. I'm pretty sure, I'm like 99% sure that... At the previous video that we did, there is someone commenting that, okay, so now you interviewed this detransitioner, so now you have to do 100 interviews with trans people. So that's their logic. Nothing Mm -hmm. is ever enough. (laughs) More trans stuff. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, I've seen that logic also. And, yeah, I, I think it's a funny uh, problem for the trans activism that they recognize, well, they, they want to reject the transitioners because it's a threat to their own psyche and their own framework and their own ide- ideology and their identity and all of that. So they want to reject detransitioners, but at the same time, they recognize that if they reject detransitioners, there will be other groups to grab them. <laughs> so they kind of have to figure out what to do. So I don't know if that is their solution, that, okay, we allow someone to do something about detransitioning, but if they do something about detransitioning, they have to do 100 things about transitioning. So I don't know if that's some sort of like activist logic on mm. how to make it right or mm. something. I don't know. And you really don't want to use detransition as an art uh, or or explore that artistically. What, what do you think about uh, support uh, doing art for the detransitioner community? Or does that just the whole thing about doing art about identity is just you're totally over it. You don't think that it can be done ethically or with integrity. Uh, well, the very original idea that I had about detransitioning that I was working on before I detransitioned, that was to gather a group of detransitioners and to work on uh, like a mind-body connection to reconnect with bodies and to do some sort of like maybe uh, improvised or creative dance classes together just in private and then together to create maybe portraits or something in which the detransitioner gets to decide how they are portrayed. So I was planning on this like series of workshops that I could do with the transitioners because I saw that the body-mind connection and the healing connection to yourself, that is uh, something that is essential to this issue. So that's why I wanted to do that. And also I wanted to give them the agency to choose how they are going to be viewed and how they are going to be exhibited because there is so much around detransitioners. Like there's there's so many different like groups <laughs> who want to use detransitioners for their own narratives or agendas or something. And also to see detransitioners as victims and these kind of like, your life is now ruined forever. And I think that is a really dangerous narrative because detransitioners are people who are dealing with the total collapse of their framework, of their understanding of themselves and their place in the world and their bodies. And they have to deal with the medical and legal consequences of what they've done to themselves. and. Most of them, they have severe severe mental health issues, maybe also like neurodiverse conditions and so on and so on. So they're very fragile and vulnerable. And to take that group of people and to portray that in a way, because I understand the narrative, like, okay, now their life is ruined forever because it warns the public about the truth 
dangers of transitioning. Like I get it, but for the detransitioners to themselves, that is extremely dangerous narrative because you take these individuals who are in a high risk of self-harming and like all sorts of risks because they are in such a fragile state and then to make this like example out of them so like i think it's scary but i think that's like i never like questioned my motivations to do that because i had like genuine intentions with my project and that's why i wanted to do these workshops that are only for the group and in private and it's not gonna like there's going to be parts of the process that are like not public and there's going to be some sort of end product that they get to decide on but the reason why i didn't do anything about the transition with other detransitioners is because i'm scared of that uh vulnerability and fragility and i'm i'm not uh like i have my history with codependency and so on and so on and dealing with my own like history of having some sort of savior complex because i tried for so long to save my foster siblings and uh, like a lot of different people dealing with mental health issues and uh, substance abuse and so on and so on and uh, lately i've been accepting the fact that i cannot save anyone (laughs) and now i'm trying to stay away from uh like uh, people who are very troubled because i just i get too involved and i just i can't handle it and also i have distanced myself from the transitioners in finland and online also like i'm not connected i'm not part of any support groups or any sort of discourses or anything because of the politics involved because i don't want to jump to the gender critical side of things i want to stay uh switzerland <laughs> I, I i want to i want to be able to criticize both the gender identity side of things and the gender critical side of things and the conservatives and the religious people and all of these different like interests so i, I want to stay out of all of that hmm. So it so, sounds like yeah. you're in a position to do uh, outside outside art. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I did this one uh, practice, practice project about outsider art in the spirit of like the true outsider art. Like I've done a lot of like crocheting because that's something that I, I just do sometimes. And I took all of my crocheting and I did this like installation by this abandoned house in the forest. And there was like abandoned old car. So I, I took all of my crocheting work and I, I did this installation in the forest. I'm making a video about it. And I did it. And then I was like, yeah, but what's the point? <laughs> because I come from the art institutions and the art theory and all of that. Now I don't know how to function without it. And if I just do something just out of the joy of doing something, then I don't know what to do with it because I'm like, did I get joy out of this? I don't know. Did anyone get anything out of this? I, I don't know. <laughs> so yeah and what's your relationship to creating youtube videos at this time what's that medium Uh, about for you i I took a month 
or month and a half break during the spring when I started my internship and I was working a lot and I was thinking about it because I was simultaneously thinking about my relationship to the art world and all of that and also the YouTube channel is it's a thing kind of like oh I can't be a social media personality or YouTuber if I want to be an artist taken seriously in the realm of the fine arts so kind of so that's why I've always kind of kept it secret <laughs> And it used to be called uh, The Honesty Project, also partially because I was like, okay, so if somebody finds out, I can just say it's a part project. I can frame this as a project. It's already called a project. So that's also my stupid sense of humor and my opportunistic nature. But I kind of came to the conclusion that I prefer being a content creator because that just means you just create content. What is content? Anything is content. It's free from the the like fucking institutions in fine arts and the, the blah, blah, blah of the theory of this and that. And I appreciate the honesty of content creation and social media in that sense that like everyone thinks that social media is this like dumpster fire. <laughs> but then people are like, yeah, it's garbage, but we love it. So it's kind of like there's this freedom to criticize it. Because in in the if you try to criticize the art world and how it functions within it, it's kind of this uphill battle and it's like and it's very theoretical and blah 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 blah. So that's why I like content creation more. So that's why I came back to YouTube and I was excited about it. But Honestly, I don't know what to do with my YouTube channel because it's just me oversharing about something, me publicly processing things. And people come, like, leave me comments that it helps them somehow. And somebody said that sometimes when they have to process something that they are stressing about or something, then they start to talk to themselves in their head the way I talk in my videos. So somehow me publicly processing things, it helps other people also to break down their like own thinking patterns or something. I don't know. So I thought that was fun, kind of. Also kind of weird, but also kind of fun. Is there so, anything yeah. in the institution that you could bring to content creation? Or does the institution basically only uh, teach conformity to the institution, like with regard to theory and stuff like that? Maybe the, like uh, self-reflection. But I don't know if anyone wants to see that, like, YouTuber talking <laughs> about YouTube on YouTube. But I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of online creators who do that. So I think maybe that, but I don't know. I, at, the, at the moment, I'm really struggling with the art side of things because I'm, I'm just I'm very disappointed in it. Because I came from activism and I thought that, oh, I can change the world through art. And then it's some sort of like art theory, name dropping, this and that, or identity, this and that. And then it's like you have to build up your CV and you have to apply for this and that. And it's so much paperwork. And I was like, this is a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, well, I, no matter what, it's going to be a job. There's going to be work no matter what. Um, yeah, that seems to be the case. But it's just interesting that this institution 
this institutionalization, um, this progressive institution is about changing the world, but nobody ever actually changes the world. You're just a part of this process that promises change, but the change only happens in the direction of you're not changing the way the world changes. You're just changing the world according to how the institution has already decided to change the world. You're you're just going to be on the right side of history, whatever that means. And you don't get to choose that. It, it seems like less liberating than, well, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the other thing would be. Um, but just that progressive ideology, uh, it promises that youthful energy and yokes it to another form of conformity. Yeah. And then it's kind of like, well, I think the art world always does that. Like, like Dadaism and all of that. Like Dada was meant to be this rebellion against the institutions. And now it's celebrated part of art history. And it's seen as this one movement amongst all the other movements. So it failed at what it tried to do in that sense. So I think the art world functions the same way capitalism functions, that it just swallows everything as a part of it. And it accepts any sort of rebellion against itself as a part of itself. So then it's like, I don't know, Hmm. see it as kind of pointless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you will be assimilated or yeah, forgotten yeah. or canceled um, or erased. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I've been trying to figure out what is the next thing in art, and I hope it would be skill, <laughs> like <laughs> just pure hard work and skill and talent. I don't have any of that, <laughs> but... I mean, I Why hope do somebody that? else does. I mean, because, like, I mean, I come from anarchism. I, I come from this, like, very leftist uh, ideology. And I come from, like, there is this kind of, like, a, it's called the job-refusing union in Finland. <laughs> it's like people who just refuse jobs because it's like, you know, the climate change is happening and all we do is destroy the world. So we are going to refuse to work. I don't know. The, all jobs are bullshit anyway. So let's refuse to work and so on and so on. Like I have my background in this very uh, anti-capitalist, uh, anarchist ideologies, but also because I I don't know. <laughs> just, I've come to realize lately that I'm not I'm not a very like hard working person. <laughs> and I I at some point I realized like there is this like you know the hustle culture and everyone no matter who you are whether you are an anti-capitalist anarchist artist or whoever everyone takes pride in being busy and doing a lot of things and then I was like yeah but I don't want to be busy. <laughs> I just I want to take a walk in the forest and do my own things and read books. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. So (laughs) my uh, problem is that everything is a job at the end of the day. Yeah. Even content creation, but you get to trick yourself into just thinking that all you're doing is thinking out loud. 
But over yeah. time, you get better and better at thinking out loud, right? Yeah, I think that's also like part of the reason why. <laughs> like I like I've had my YouTube channel for two and a half years now, but I haven't made like a huge uh, progress in the content quality, like the editing and the visuals and all of that. Like I don't film. Uh, b-roll footage of myself doing things pretending i don't see the camera because that feels so weird to me i just can't do it it's so ridiculous and like even like the silly things like now that i have to be on this diet to lower my cholesterol so I, i'm documenting that and i'm making a video about that so i was filming my food like what am i eating my meals and then i was like i can't take this seriously like i just i can't like place my food and take a nice video footage of it like i started to zoom in and out and just like like i can't take anything seriously enough to like i don't know because in youtube also of course if you want to be successful and do it for a living you have to uh conform to <laughs> some sort of audience expectations or algorithm or something i don't know but yeah it's it's something that has been on my mind lately because I've done a lot of these things. Uh, like when I was a teenager, I had a blog and a lot of people who had blogs at the time, they are now like somewhat rich and famous in Finland. And I was like, but I had a blog, like why I didn't do that. And then I was like, yeah, but I was just documenting my drunken injuries and I was just making fun of the uh, like fashion blog thing i was posting pictures of me being like wearing flannel shirts every day just i don't know and just being at my worst <laughs> so it's it's like i've always done all of these like trendy things and participated in things but then i kind of like self-sabotage myself because i can't be commercial <laughs> hmm. i don't know well you, you say self-sabotage that that's a strong term it, it to me it seems like you're just you're kind of always in rebellion you're like you're just a rebel and ultimately the only thing that you can always rebel against is doing something or being something right or working i guess is kind of the ultimate or caring i guess if if you if you if you're apathetic that that's just a total rebellion yeah yeah i think there's a bunch of uh not bunch of but few uh philosophers who came to that conclusion that they just ended up doing nothing at the end or something as hmm. a total rebellion or a total rejection but uh i don't know because i do a lot of things all the time like i'm working on things all the time but i just uh, I just don't make money with them or when I am successful at something like the identity arts and my art career and something like it was going very well like I won some competitions and I did exhibitions and everything but then I just kind of I don't know there's something that I just I need to stop <laughs> and then <laughs> and then I do stop I somehow can't seize the moment hmm. like I've had some YouTube videos uh, gain some attraction and I had some videos that had like 50,000 views or something and then I was like yeah I'm gonna make all of this members only and nobody needs to see this anymore and then I was like oh I'm not making money anymore <laughs> but 
Yeah, that's something that I'm still trying to figure out. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm reading the book, the You and Your Profile, uh, by the Hans Müller. Yes, Moyler? I was trying Moyler? to see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think my profile right now <laughs> that I'm painting off myself is not very good. <laughs> I've been reading the book too much, but I think that's also something that I always rebelled against is the self as a brand or this like image that you sell and the brand that you cultivate and it's like no hmm. and i i think of it as because i have to be aware of it and i have one um, obviously because I'm uploading content all the time and I'm very active on social media and, uh, I have my picture there and it's my name. It's my picture. Um, it's me doing this. It's me sharing myself. And, but so I'm aware of the reality of the profile or the brand, but it, it's just kind of uh, secondary. It's just something that the audience and I kind of just create as a shopping bag to carry the content. It's just the container of the content. It's just the packaging around the content. It, it's really secondary to the content. It's not really a thing itself. Um, if it were a thing itself, I would probably be in your position where I'd have to rebel against it or like intentionally upset it. I just, I don't think about it. I mean, I, I'm a, kind of aware of it, but I always kind of just forget about it because when I have taken it seriously, it becomes kind of a demon in a way. Um, and not just like a, a devil, but just it becomes a, it has a life of its own and it starts to tell me what to do and it starts to control me in a way. Um, so I just kind of let it do its thing and do my thing. And then it kind of does its thing. Right. And we just kind of work together. Right. And it's this virtual spirit uh, that takes my shape and uses my voice and, uh, you know, adopts every characteristic that I upload into this matrix thing. Um, but I have kind of this relationship where I kind of just, I, I guess I respect it, but I don't, I, but I'm careful not to, you know, believe in it or put too much stock in it. Do you just let it be? Or do you kind of, if you see that, like, kind of like if, if there's something you don't agree with it or you don't like about it, so do you then take action to uh, change the course of your profile to keep it closer to you somehow? I have seen that certain content that I create creates uh, a self image of me that I just don't like, you know? So I think that in a way why I've become like the calm conversation guy is because I can, I can accept me when I'm calm. Like I don't feel guilt or regret about content that's vibing calmly out there. Um, sometimes I get spicy on Twitter, but I usually only try to get spicy when I'm having fun. I, whenever I'm angry at something, um, I try to encapsulate it with a bit of wit. So it's diffusible or there's like another level of meaning that can kind of tug apart that, that spice and just kind of like diffuse it because I just don't like, uh, 
I don't like when I did a lot of critical content. I started this uh, series called Oh, the Humanities, where I would just snarkily read um, academic papers that were really serious, you know, but they're so silly, you know, and I just snarkily read them. I just that interacting with that critical modality just started to sour me. And I started getting more and more anxious and losing a lot of sleep and waking up in the middle of the night and caring what people were thinking about me. So I kind of backed away from that because I do have a relationship to how I'm perceived. I do feel when people are angry at me online, I can feel it when I get in trouble with the, with the turfs, you know, when I do a bad joke or something like that. And like, it just follows me around. I'm really anxious. So yeah, so there, there's that. So I'm just really aware that it's not distant from me. Um, but at the same time, it's really not really me. Right. Yeah. And also yeah. in the interviews and in being able to be an interviewer, then I allow my, um, my power or my, my internet power to, to work in service of something other than just me and my ego. I use my ego that I've constructed my, my profile to serve other people and, and to give them a place to be honest and to extend their profile in the direction of authenticity that I don't like that word, but I, you know, I hope you know, I'm in it in the positive sense. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Gonna think? Yeah. I was thinking your, uh, your puns that you have been in trouble with, like when you said that you try to use your wit to deep, to have the option to diffuse the situation, so on. Yeah, I think like there's something, something like inherent to me that I, I, I don't want to be like. <laughs> Or, like, I don't know, I feel like, especially with the social media stuff, and because I used to have the blog, and then I saw, like, the other bloggers who started just as random people as I did, and then I saw them to become, like, actual celebrities and so on. And and then, I yeah, I was also selling clothing, and then this one girl was buying, like, like huge... Uh, piles of clothing from me and then she was like reselling it on Depop for more money and then uh, she was telling me to go on Depop and to like sell clothing for more money and to do all that and then I read an interview of her that she is the biggest Depop seller in Finland and so on and so on so a lot of things that I do I see other people getting successful with and then I kind of like I, I don't know I can't like do that like i feel like other people have some sort of instinct to you know seize the moment and go for it and be successful and then i have the opposite instinct of being like no please everyone hates me uh i suck and then i don't like it it's kind of weird like thing that i have observed myself doing <laughs> but it's i don't know It's, it's good in so far as it keeps you humble. Um, but at the same time, it might be the case that you're still, I'm really sorry to speak this way. It might be the case that you're still struggling with a feeling of being unworthy of love. Right? Yeah. 
And success is so. just love filtered through money, right? Yeah. And also, I think there is some sort of, I feel like a sense of responsibility if I like have an audience or if people like me or something. And then like, I feel that inevitable, it's like, I'm going to let them down. So it's better that they just take me from the get go. And then it's, it's like a weird thing. But it's also kind of like the position that I've somehow identified with that I want to be able to criticize everything and everyone and to stay out of any sort of group or something. Do you at all want to change in that way? Do you, do you at all want to just let go and be successful? Uh, yes, I do want to see myself being successful. I do love money. It's so weird. Like, like the amount of self-sabotage I do, <laughs> but I do love money at the same time. That's also one thing that has separated me from a lot of other people working in arts because I've always wanted to make money. <laughs> and then other people say that they don't care about it. And I'm like, just be honest. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. But it's it's a weird uh, dynamic to exist in. And also, while I've been reading the book, I've been thinking about my profile because, of course, like intentionally or unintentionally, I will create a profile. And within arts, because I've done so many like deeply personal projects and like always been oversharing, and I've read like police uh, investigation papers on stage when I got beaten up and and then I made this uh, spoken word thing about like I would have beaten myself up also because I understand the person who beat me up and like like very brutal way of just being deeply personal very publicly where was I going with this why was I talking about this as you're reading the profile book, it's uh, Yes, yes, yes. So I had, I think I had this profile as an artist and as a person and also kind of also on my YouTube channel that I am this very uh, open person. But I think that also adds up to me wanting to scare people away or somehow... Because I don't want people to expect that vulnerability and intimacy from me, and then I want to scare them away or something. Hmm. I don't know. Hmm. But yeah, also, I just, yeah, I guess I should think about my profile. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like I don't want to do it. Hmm. And also, I think. No, I don't know. But I wanted to ask you a question. (laughs) Because I saw your video. Uh, I don't remember what it was titled. I don't remember anything else in the video, except it was you saying that you went to church. And you were in the church and you were moved by it. So I wanted to ask about your uh, relationship to religion and the 
sacred or hmm. holy or something. I don't know. Hmm. Well, I, where where do you where you, you want to narrow it down? It's a huge topic. Uh, well, did you become Catholic? I don't remember when did you post that video. That wasn't that long. And ago also, or... kind of, I was kind of thinking that because I kind of see similarities. Uh, in my approach to church at the moment because I, I guess I'm going through something similar in a way but also I think like do you think there is like this missing link or connection between the sacred and the holy and arts and creation and creativity or do you like I don't know well like we were saying art serves art is nothing in itself the whole art for art's sake is it's not true. It doesn't really actually work out as being true. It's just a cover for art serving either the aristocracy and ideology or God or the self, right? The self is there too. Uh, art that serves the self, uh, doesn't have a long shelf life unless the self's pretty amazing, right? So art that serves the self, the self, I don't think is really that important. The self is like we were saying with the profile, just a vehicle for content. The self, uh, art that serves the self could be good if the self is serving something other than the self, right? Uh, other than its own power or prowess, but explaining something like you were doing with your YouTube channel where it is about you. It's art that's serving you, the art, the content is serving you, um, but you're bringing some content through you to other people and other people are getting value out of that. So yourself is being used as a vehicle for art, um, art that serves the aristocracy. Like we've seen the aristocracy is, uh, aristocracy. Aristocracy is taken over by what we call woke ideology. Right. And you're tired of that. I'm tired of that. I don't think it's really interesting. And I think ultimately it's pretty damn destructive. So I don't think that the, aristocracy is serving something good. Um, if the aristocracy was serving something good, it would lead to better art, I think. And so the art that is being adulated by the elite, much better word to say than the aristocracy, the art that, um, the art is showing the essence or the soul of the, the elite. The elite is worshiping art um, that in the act of worship, it creates their soul and it also manifests their soul. So their soul is really up in arms about identity and the environment and all these causes. That's the soul of it. And it's kind of a Marxist ish soul. Uh, if you look at God or the sacred, like what is the sacred? Well, the sacred would be in part, um, I think the sacred is two things. One, it's the inner self or the highest self and the self's communion with reality or being. And so art that serves the self that's in search of being could have a real content and that content could be very dark. It could be content that's simply somebody that's um, going through some sort of purification. And so it's really dirty because they're vomiting out some dirt or they're going through some trauma right? And they're trying to get to the ground of being. And the ground of being is not chaos. I don't think the ground of being is chaos. I think that the ground of chaos or the ground of being is peace and can contain chaos. And the ground of being, when it confronts chaos, it causes chaos to relax and, and to 
become ordered. And I think that's why we live in an ordered universe and not a chaotic universe, because the order is organizing chaos into stable forms and into selves. Um, and then it also, because it's a living world, chaos is always there and coming in and there's a dialogue between chaos and order. Um, so art that serves the self in search of being, which is just another word for God or God is just another word for being, I think has real content. And whether or not that content is good for other people is totally open. It could be really crappy content, but it's really authentic for that person's journey. And I think it has an inherent value in and of itself. The other aspect of the sacred would be the sacred traditions, um, which would be the accumulation of generation after generation pursuing maintaining and cultivating a relationship with the ground of being or God. And so when I talked about that experience that I had this spring where I went into this Catholic church that wasn't anything special, especially by European standards, um, but there was just this sense of connection, like this place was carved out of the world specifically for individuals to commune together with the ground of being. And because that place was set aside for that, it allowed me to open up to some things that I needed to go through in order to renew my connection with God or the ground of being, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so art that serves that would probably have some sort of intention to be uh, an object that allows for a portal for individuals to remember and to commune with being, right? So art that it would be a painting or a shawl or something like that, or like rosary, like a bead, that, that's sacred. And it has a meaning, so it's not like art for art's sake, and it, but it's not a deconstructive meaning, it's a sacred meaning. And, and that sacred meaning means that this is a tool, it's an icon, um, it's an idol, it's a painting or a picture or a parable or a song or a story or something like that, or even just an illustrated manuscript, that this is a place or this is an object to remind you and then to help you as the, as the consumer of the art to participate something other than just witnessing an aesthetic experience or seeing something beautiful. It's like, no, this is, this is directing your attention very intentionally towards this orientation with the ground of being. That's my answer. Yep. <laughs> That's uh, very similar to what I ended up with. Is it in English also the word sublime? That's yeah, I think that's, yeah, yeah, it describes that, uh, like, experience and connection to something, or they're trying to have the connection to something larger or higher than yourself. Do you know the documentary by Sir Roger Scruton? What's about the... art and meaning of art? What's it called? Do, just the art and meaning of art? Or, I, know uh, I don't remember. Oh, it's beauty something. Uh, why beauty matters? It's called Why Beauty Matters. <laughs> there was a point at my YouTube channel when I was talking about it in like every video because my memory is so bad. I don't remember anything. And then I was just making video after video after video about talking about it. And the 
art world and how the art world is failing because it's no longer like according to this and this like idea of like why beauty matters and the connection between the sacred and the art and all that. So yeah, uh, that was also the conclusion that I ended up with. But then I was trying to figure out like, oh, if I'm the artist, like how am I going to do that? And then I hit a wall again with that. But then I was like, okay, so maybe I can provide this space for it instead of being the artist because I don't think I have the skills. No, to do I, that I, I disagree with you. I think that if you wanted to do that, all you have to do, well, the, the chief move or the first move and the constant move to make is to, when you're creating art, be in a quiet space. Just remember, this is me. I'm in commute. I'm in communication and communion with reality. Right. Whenever I, whenever I am doing my work, it is a prayer, right? It, it, it's, it's me sending a message and, and listening for guidance and, and just doing that, uh, allows your, your consciousness to, to take over rather than your ego or your mind or your thoughts or all your cleverness. Like that just, it becomes a part and then whatever happens, happens, but you are using it as a way to grow as an individual, to heal all that other stuff. I think healing isn't the end point. Um, it, it's necessary because we're all broken to heal is very necessary, but it's not the end point. We don't want to just heal and then die, you know, like, Oh, I, I heal and die. Like, no, I want to heal so I can do something good. And so th that'll all be a part of the process. So it's more just about, your orientation to what you're doing and just make it a whatever if it's sublime whatever word or concept it is that that i i think it's peace or or uh, re relaxing and kind of just surrendering and and letting it and just being aware just like just being aware and then just doing the thing just doing the thing and then just doing the thing yeah that it's very a different approach to making and creating something than what my original approach was to exploit my identity to get easy money <laughs> so, and change yeah. the world yeah yeah also that yeah if i can change the world and make money then but <laughs> yeah uh yeah i think that's a good approach to making anything really or living and yeah, it's, yeah, I kind of had like a similar experience when it comes to churches and that type of environment, because I've always liked churches as buildings and like all the like art and especially I like Catholic churches and Orthodox churches because they have more bling. Because the Protestant churches, they don't have the bling. And uh, I love me some bling. But, <laughs> but here in this small town where I moved, uh, there is this very small and cozy church. And at the altar, there's a big painting, but it's not Jesus at the cross. But instead, it's uh, 
a mom and a child. And it was like uh, painted like uh, after like modeled by uh, some local woman here and it was like a commission by an artist and it's it's a like a very finished looking painting and there's the woman with the baby and nursing the baby and there is the light like coming from above and i think the light is like what i always love about this kind of like in religious texts and art and all of it, kind of like the divine light that like shines through and all the text about that it's like a metaphor that like repeats itself but i think that is also something kind of like to be guided by that and i feel like there is some sort of like visual representation to connect to that like process of making something as you described to be kind of like guided by that light but it, it's been funny that I've been to the church now here, I think more times than like in my life combined ever. <laughs> but it, it's like such like a small and cozy church. And I think it's like shaped like a, what is this called? Like a cross like this, like equal cross instead of like an actual cross. And I think the the equal shape of the church also uh, makes it cozy and more equal somehow. I don't know, because I have my <laughs> shoes with uh, authorities and like hierarchies and so on. Mm -hmm. So, but it's like, I also thought it's like this space where you get to go and be like, okay, I'm physically in this space. So I'm also mentally and psychologically in this space of like approaching something that is not always present in everyday life. So I think that's like it's a, I don't know. I kind of have this like new approach to religion where it's like, I don't have to focus on the, the literal text or the stories as a literal things and I don't know, because I think the rituals and practices and the space and the environment is so much more important than, than like, the stories. The, I had a thought about the profile. Um, Jonathan Peugeot, icon carver, Greek Orthodox guy, he's a YouTuber, does these videos that describe symbolism and uh, from a Christian point of view. And um, very brilliant man, but he talks a lot about worship and his meaning of the word is about how you pay attention and what you pay attention to. That is the reality. The reality is in your paying attention to things. The profile is other people paying attention to things or other people paying attention to you um, and you paying attention to you and you producing you in front of other people, it's inherently a virtue signal, but it can also be a ground of, of uh, imprinting a certain type of attention. And the beauty of the Catholic church and the problem with the Catholic church theologically is that 
from a Protestant point of view, it's a bunch of idols, right? It's a bunch of like, you're worshiping Jesus on the cross, you're worshiping Mary. And you are and you aren't. It's a different form of of training your attention. You don't worship that gold scepter or whatever it is. You don't worship the song. You use these things to remind yourself of or to train your attention to see that, like just like you're saying, to see that I am... Like when I'm doing my work, when I'm making my video, when I'm speaking, I, if I just allow for a space where I'm being witnessed, like the light is like God's eye, right? But God's eye isn't something that takes in. God's eye is something that, that sheds light, right? It's like this inside out eye, you know, it's like those laser eyes. And so if you just remind yourself and going to that church is just remind yourself that this is a place where I am in front of God, or I am, I'm being witnessed and I'm witnessing God, or I'm worshiping and I'm being witnessed in my worship and worship isn't, you have to think of it as just paying attention to things. And then you can start to bring that into everything that you do. I mean, ideally, that's what becoming religious is, is that you're always, everything is a sacred act. Every single thing becomes uh, a prayer, even every breath. If you go as far as possible, like every time I breathe in and breathe out is, is a moment of me participating in being everything, right? And so the, the church, uh, going to church is a practice that does it very, with your whole body and it just divorces you from the world, like, just like you're saying, but you have to bring it out and, and to put it into all the different things. And then you just kind of start to see life as just this constant, you're always kind of, you're already in heaven, right? You're already just like, you're bringing heaven into and heaven, just being, being, and not being in forgetfulness or in all these different like anger and lust and laziness, all these different things that are called sin isn't just, isn't like evil. It's just states or activities or attitudes that are outside of the ground of being. It's outside of the light, even though it, it is because the light's everywhere, but it's you turning away from the light. And so it's just, it's kind of like a practice to become religious is just a practice and then you get to fail all the time and forget. God damn it. <laughs> but I think that corresponds to like meditation and how some people approach the meditation. That is kind of like you meditate on things and it's a way of like living and well, of course, breathing, but like it's the mindfulness and meditation and the being present and allowing hmm. things to be present with you in your presence and so on. So mm -hmm. I think that it's a more like a universal approach to religion rather than like, because kind of like my approach to religions is that it doesn't really matter like which specific religion you choose because the important stuff is always there because the like what you need is the experience and connection with something sacred, something holy, and rituals and practices and traditions, and the like feeling that you are not alone in some sort of void, but you are part of like something mm. like existence that is like continuing. Mm -hmm. So, I think like 
because I used to in in my rebelling against everything I, I used to have a very long face that was also part of my art career but mainly in my poetry that I did all of this like like raging against the god type of things and I had this like existential rage for the longest time because I was so bitter about everything <laughs> but I think that's something that's changing and like I'm able to let go of that existential rage even though sometimes it kind of <laughs> makes a comeback but like in like most cases I'm kind of approaching that like because like yeah we talked about the anti-natalism and I've been do- thinking about anti-natalism because I sterilized myself and that is like act against life to do that and I I was kind of thinking like am I an anti-natalist for sterilizing myself and then because uh, I read at the archives of the social services that my uh, mom was basically told to sterilize herself and she refused and then she switched to uh, to go to another uh, um, healthcare facility or hospital or something because of that because she was insulted by that and now recently I visited my hometown and I received a bunch of papers about my dad from my grandma and in those papers uh, there was medical files uh, for my dad uh, like applying for admission or like permission to sterilize himself as a 22 year old like he wanted to sterilize himself and he never wanted to have a family but the doctor's statement was that oh but He's a healthy young man. No need to sterilize him. Like we, like he was denied the sterilization that he he wanted. And then I was like, oh, this is so funny. Do I have like anti-natalism in my family? <laughs> and I was like, that's so funny. But then I was kind of thinking like this, like anti-natalism thing and being against life and my like rejection of everything and rebellion against everything and my existential rage and. And because I saw the anti-natalism and, uh, against humans attitudes in environmentalism and veganism, because there are so many people who just casually hate humanity and the sentiment that humans are the cancer of the earth and these type of belief systems and people just hate people. And, and then the trans stuff and how your identity is now more important than uh, your fertility. And also within the trans things is that like parents who kind of push the trans narrative to their kids. And if they push their kids to in an early transition, then they will essentially sterilize their kids. So I think I have a lot of like background in this like anti-life <laughs> and I've been trying to kind of like crawl my way out of that towards the light <laughs> kind of in a sense and like I was thinking about the anti-natalism and I have watched some like YouTube videos about it and there is like anti-natalists like uh, 
talking about their views and I think it's an interesting thing because it's so repressed like it's it's like so anti-life at its core and because they think that life is so miserable that it's better not to be born and then I was thinking like do I think that and then I I realized like I have finally reached the point where I don't think that and I think that life is this like absurd adventure and it's like it's so ridiculous like life entirely it's so ridiculous and dramatic and fun and sad and all of these things that i wouldn't not do it like i i I don't (laughs) i don't agree with the anti-natalist and their views that life is so miserable and there's always more suffering because it's like yeah but the suffering is also kind of fun in a way (laughs) and and i was thinking that yeah this is like a huge shift in my thinking that i i'm out of the anti-life narratives and movements and ideologies and all of that and i have reached a point where i do think that even despite all the suffering life is still a fun adventure and it's still worth it (laughs) so yeah i think that this like new approach to religion and the sacred is also part of that letting go of the rejection and rebellion even though i do be rebelling against being successful but <laughs> that's a problem but <laughs> oh, it, it, it can be changed in an instant uh, human beings can be shown things when uh spiritual master which is the wrong term for the guy um pak subu uh sumu hadiwajoyo uh indonesian uh fellow who uh founded my spiritual group he said that human beings can hate god all they want and it doesn't really matter hating god that existential raise it doesn't really matter because god can take care of that in in a moment but what you really have to be careful of is hating other human beings um, and hating yourself, because when you do that, then that separates you from God. That that forms a dark cloud around you that that can't even be penetrated um, by God. Um, and it is. I remember when I was twenty, twenty-one. I was so angry. I just didn't want to be alive. I, mean, I didn't want to die, but I just didn't want to be born. I didn't. I didn't like existence it just seems so stupid and difficult and not worth it and i was just i was just really depressed and really angry and uh got in a lot of trouble because of that um did a lot of rebellion because of that and um but i could only go so far there was only so far that i could go before i uh, i just i can i could see that you know there's two directions that i can go i can go i can surrender myself to um the holy or being and allow myself to participate in that and make that my meaning, but I would have to give up my will or I could go just toward totally in my will and make all of my life all about me and magnifying my strength and magnifying my power and ultimately really, really suffering because 
I'm not a clean person. I'm not a good, I'm not essentially good. If I would just magnify my will, I would just, all I would be doing is amplifying my pleasure and amplifying my pain, but not really finding peace. Um, and probably living a really short life, um, because I could only do that for so long. I only have so much energy. And, uh, you know, so I made the wager and I'm like, well, okay, God, tell me, show me, I, you have to show me. Cause I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna play the game anymore. You know, stupid me. I was like 20. I didn't know anything, 22 or whatever. And then I was just, I was given the gift of just being able to feel the presence and feel that, and I don't mean to rag on meditation or the Buddhistic religions or the East, but I need, uh, when I want, when I relax, oh. Oh, I need to uh, block Plug in your phone. phone. I was almost oh, done. Okay. <laughs> Just wait a second. <laughs> All right. I don't know if I should be talking about this. Where am I? Okay, I'm back. Oh, there you are. What can you see in the background? It's fine. What is this? Do you have a chair? Uh, no, I'm standing the whole time anyway. Well, we should probably wrap up anyways. Um... Yes. Uh, but you were saying about that because I was thinking that ah uh, yes because you had the the change of heart kind of in your twenties but like how did that happen like the conclusion that you need to change things well I mean it didn't conclude I just I was given the opportunity to feel um, directly without the mediation of uh, belief because I had a problem with belief I still have a problem with belief but I don't I'm, I'm not angry about it I just have a kind of a problem with it um, but I just was given proof that um, there is a life inside of life life isn't just this machine this mechanism this random order of things that just happens to function and it's just noisy and it's just people like competing and uh, struggling and then building things there's there's actually a content inside of it there's actually this vibration that's what, i guess that's what i was trying to say is that um when when i worship i i don't worship to to be absent or to 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 merge with just pure witnessing or pure uh, awareness, I I worship in order to return to that. It's like almost like this electric vibration that's running through everything. That's just always there, and that that's what I call the ground of being, or, or maybe the the Holy Spirit. There's other words, the power of God, or something like that. So um, I was just in my twenties when I found that. I found that if I relaxed and aimed in a particular direction, I could receive and have a dialogue with that. And then once I, once that happened, then my entire life had to fall apart, completely fall apart. And then I had to rebuild and it fell apart over and over again. But I, I entered into that relationship and then I had to be broken down and remade and broken down and remade and broken down and remade. But with the added, um, you know, bonus of being able to, just be in love, be inside of love, you know, be in love when I remember, you know, 
And when, when I... Yeah, so it's uh, kind of like very different than meditation because in meditation you kind of stop thinking and you kind of empty yourself. But it's kind of like opposite of that because you are reconnecting to something and you get something from it. So it's not the absence of something. No, everything something. comes up. Every, it's full of movement. It's full of... It's full. It's, it's just like this fountain. You know? Yeah. And then I, I participate. And I, I move and I sing and I dance and I, you know, it's kind of a ecstatic like um, quality rather than stillness. Yeah. But it starts so with it, stillness. It starts with quiet. Yeah. So there is like similarities, but also opposites. But it's kind of like a non-dualistic thing where it's, I don't know. But I like that description of that experience. I once almost uh, joined a cult kind of accidentally. And I think they were experiencing something like that. And then I had this like jealousy <laughs> that I've kind of had throughout my life, like to religious people or spiritual people who have that kind of, I think there is like a combination of like psychological and emotional safety and joy in that experience and connection and all that. And then I was in one of their meetings and they were chanting the Hare Krishna things and different things and chanting and they were like playing different instruments and they gave me some instrument also and and i was ha like looking at them and they were so like blissfully just chanting and playing music and all of that and i was just watching them i was like i wish i could enter that but i feel like I, there's something that i can't but it's like it's i think it's also something like i find it really difficult to give in to that sort of thing but i think that's I'm, like that type of experience it sounds nice in that sense that if you have like a framework collapse of your understanding of yourself and the world and all of that but you gain something to fill that void because i feel like in my life whenever i've had this like framework collapses I didn't like get much in return, but then I made my peace with the void. <laughs> and I guess that's something that like interests me in philosophy because I can just look at different frameworks and different ways of thinking and modes of thinking and approaching things. And I can kind of like, just observe all of it and stay out of it and to have that type of like, uh, maybe like distance to it. Just like you were saying with uh, ideologies and po political things, you kind of want to not be a part of a group or yeah, coll collective uh, like conscience. Earlier this year, I kind of accidentally stumbled upon this group of uh, gender critical lesbians in Finland and I was like oh I didn't know this is thing and then I was kind of thinking like but why would I identify as gender critical lesbian like why would I 
like first of all, oh, I don't know, my sexual orientation isn't part of my identity anyway. But also, why would I identify in such a like intimate part of my life, like in opposition of something? Like I don't want to be in reaction to something else or opposing something. And I don't want to live in a re- reaction in that sense. And I was like, no, but I, I don't want to be part of this group that is like in this like opposition to this other group or something. And I don't know. Hmm. But it's it's weird that like I've had this shift. It's kind of like a slow ongoing process where I'm like, I want to give in and I want to give up the rebellion and the rejecting everything and all of that. But at the same time, it's it's so difficult. <laughs> but like, I also, I hand that change of heart, like being like very chaotic and drinking heavily and doing whatever, and like living that up of chaotic life and not wanting to live. And for the longest time, just thinking like, Oh, do I choose to live and do I choose this life and do I accept it? Do I accept life for what it is or do I reject it and so on and so on? But for me, like the resolution that I came to is that life is a life sentence that you just have to do your time and there's no way around it. And then I was like, yeah, this is kind of like, it's not the most like uplifting approach to life, but that's like how I saw it and I was like if I stopped thinking about like whether I choose it or not and I just accept that it is what it is I've been sentenced to life in life and I have to do my time and also because I didn't have the option of offing myself because my parents did that and I had to rebel against them so in that sense I was forced to choose life because I I had to rebel. And so there's like so much rebellion going on and rejecting everything so that I kind of had to like prioritize my rebellions. <laughs> and then I prioritized rebelling against my parents and that like, that like whatever they have going on, that I will not be part of that. And therefore I have to choose life and therefore I have to accept the life sentence that is life and then I was like okay so this is not the most fun uplifting (laughs) approach but it's a start yeah like that's like how I got my start in like accepting the absurd adventure that life is and then I also, like recently, now that I've been accepting the the simultaneous end and never-ending process of de-transitioning, like it's ending, but it's never-ending at the same time. And I was accepting that. And what I, what I was going to say about this, oh, my God. I had something to say about it, and it was important, but it, I forgot. This is a start to accept Yes. So as you... Yes, no, no, I know. (laughs) Because, like, detransitioning, it was the collapse of the framework. 
especially because I was so deeply involved in all of the woke ideologies from veganism, environmentalism, identity politics, and the queer stuff and gender stuff and transitioning, all of that. That was my entire world. So I went through these like framework collapses like with veganism and like one by one, each of my frameworks of understanding the world and my place and purpose collapse after collapse after collapse. And I kind of like had this feeling that I want to hold on to the resentment and bitterness of transitioning and detransitioning because I felt like I've been tricked into this. Like my vulnerability as a person has been exploited and I want my revenge, so I'm holding on to this. But then I kind of started to view these like framework collapses as a gift because it forced me to have this viewpoint in life that, oh, these are these ideologies and politics and groups and religions and this and this and that. And then I was able to gain the interest in philosophy and also to understand that like, like I don't have to go from one ideology to the next. Like I can try to observe it all, but to stay out of it. And I don't think that would have happened without the framework collapse. Because it's like, if you live your entire life in a cult, then do you even know you are in a cult? But then if you leave the cult, then you see the cult. And that can give you a new perspective on everything. And that can be a huge thing, both in good and bad. I, I think if you look at what a human being is, uh, we wear clothes and we live in houses. Um, it's not natural for us to be naked and alone in the cold. I mean, we can pull it off, but eventually you're going to find a home, right? That's what I'm saying. Even if it's just a trailer, but eventually something's going to call you. And so what I would say is that I, I really jive with what you're doing and the position that you're in where you observe things. I, I do that too. I'm kind of an in-betweener. I, I walk between the rows, you know, in a way. Um, but when I enter into a place that I belong in, I know that I can feel that belongings here for some reason. And that's why I brought up that experience that I had uh, with the Catholic church. It's like, there's some sort of home here and I don't know what it is, but I'm at a place in my life where I'm not going to cede or give over my sovereignty. I'm not going to believe things just to belong. I don't need belonging in a communal sense. Actually, I have to figure out how to do that, but I, I want to be a part of something and I need to be a part of something somehow in some way. And the only way that I can figure out what that is, is to listen to my heart, like listen to my inner self when, when it like says, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. So I, I too am, outside of belief, but there's, I still need to be inside a home. I still need to wear clothes. I still need to present myself as a, a part of a humanity and a culture at some point, And I'm still negotiating that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm also in that process. Like, yeah, I do live in a home and wear clothes. And now I'm actually like, painting my apartment and doing all these things and like fighting my internal battle of like, can I really do whatever I want with my space or do I have to make it 
I don't know, something that other people can understand or something. Like, it's this, like, mm. thing. But also, <laughs> I don't know, that the idea that being alone and naked in forest, like, I think there has been multiple art projects in Finland, people doing that. <laughs> Because Finland, we have so much forest and we have this, like, connection to the forest and the nature and I, I guess it's because Christianity arrived late to Finland and Finnish people fought against Christianity and then I don't know I guess we had our pagan uh, forest nature like a fantastic view of the sacred for so long that it still kind of like lingers on and I don't know but it's this Thing. I don't know. A lot of people refer to the forest as their church in Finland, so it's it is this thing. And I guess Estonians have the same thing. But yeah, so I'm also <laughs> like I I wouldn't go that far than to you know to try to exit the society somehow. But like yeah, just like finding the way to exist within society and to observe and not to get involved but to have community and like it's it's so much like navigating different forces i don't know hmm. but how many cats do you have you have cats right yeah do you have cats no I, my apartment is too small and i'm allergic I oh. was gonna get a cat if I got an actual house, but I just have an apartment. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. If you're allergic, they're difficult. Um, but I, I, we had two, and one just walked away a couple weeks ago. She just disappeared. Um, so uh, we have uh, the cat, uh, the boy cat, um, the younger cat, as just like just not doing too good. So I'm, I have to find him a kitten. Because he needs, uh, he's very social. Um, he's a, he doesn't like other people, but he really likes his family, and he's really missing uh, Bijou. So, um, yeah, a little bit of tragedy on the home front there. Uh, so oh no! I need to get another kitten. So I'm waiting for kitten, the right kitten, to pop up. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's sad. No. It's sad. He's he's doing a lot yeah. of processing actually, and whenever I think of how sad he is, then I get really really sad. But I kind of accept it. Um, Bijou was great, but she just disappeared. I don't know what happened. It was the middle of the day too. She just walked off. Oh no. Yeah. How long ago was that? I guess three weeks. No. Oh uh, yeah. It's gone. Yeah, she's gone. She's gone. We we uh, we looked around for, and we we kind of live out in the woods too. So it's probably likely that either a human being stole her. Best possible option. She got run over, but I would have seen that because I travel the roads. Or an animal ate her for a mid afternoon snack. Which is probably what happened. Yeah, like beast. Like wild animals? Uh, I guess the only predator animals we have are the coyotes I and the e eagles. Um, but I don't think the eagle, uh, the eagle's not, she was a little too big for an eagle. So, yeah. But technically, an eagle could probably do it, but it would probably have been a land animal. So, yeah. Local canines. Yeah. yeah. 
Vera, what's next on your plate? Do you have any plans for YouTube for content? Do you have a schedule going up or it is what it is? Do you still public uh, publish things for the public? Uh, yes, yes, I do. Uh, my new content is uh, public and all older videos are members only for the cheap price of not one ninety nine. <laughs> I wanted to keep <laughs> yeah, I wanted to keep the price low, but I wanted to make it members only. So it's like if you really want to see it, you can pay one ninety nine. But you know, so it's this like barrier. So I wanted to do that. I've been meaning to set up a Patreon, but uh, I don't know what would I offer people in exchange. Do you have a Patreon? Yeah, but I, it's just there. It's just there. Oh. I have a PayPal and a Patreon, you know, and I just plug it. People donate when they want to donate. Oh, is that an option? Like, I was, like, stressing out that I have to do, like, Patreon exclusive entertainment, and I would be the dancing monkey, like, trying to uh, please <laughs> people feeding me. I don't know. Yeah, you can do that if you want, but you don't have to, and people will just accept you as you are, just not find it worthwhile and say well i'm paying for her content and her content is free but i still want to pay her to do it so i'll use patreon or paypal or whatever uh subscribe star is pretty solid they've been around for four years i think three or four years now they're pretty solid subscribe star yeah they're definitely they're a patreon uh patreon uh kind of knockoff or alternative patreon that isn't as ideologically captured uh, as patreon uh, uh, Oh, is Patreon, like, canceling people? Well, they they canceled Carl Benjamin a while back because at one point he called white nationalists the N-word. And, uh, like, four years prior, and they found that, and then they canceled him for being racist, and they kicked him off the platform. It was really ridiculous. Yeah. Well, that's... Uh... Very strange in very like a lot of different levels. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. That's ancient yeah, internet I, history, though. Okay. Well, I have to think about my options. Yeah, but on my channel, I'm going to upload less content about me overthinking and more content about me doing things. Mm. <laughs> At least for some videos now, I guess. <laughs> but I'm, I'm trying to move on to a direction away from the overthinking, I don't know. Well, please keep doing it and believe in yourself and allow yourself to have some success. A humble request yeah. from a fan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess. Maybe it's like the last frontier of my rebellion. I don't Not know. the last, the next. You're always going to yeah. be who you are, so. Yeah, I think so. I'm going to send you... Uh, I think I filmed a video about the, my local church. <laughs> I like it so much. <laughs> you can insert it when I'm explaining. Okay. Yeah, please do. Please do. I'll put that in. <laughs> I'd love to see that. All right, Vera, I got yeah. a motor to work. So, yeah. Great catching up, and hopefully, we get to talk again soon. 
Yep. Okay. I don't know what to say. Like, okay. <laughs> Go get him, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.